I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I have developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. Today's reading is Numbers chapters 14 and 15, and then also Psalms chapter 90. Now, when you look for really big moments in Israel's history, here you have one of the biggest, if not the biggest. As a result of this day's activities, what we're going to see here in Numbers chapter 14, a whole generation of Israelites are condemned to physical death because of this incident of rebellion. This is a remarkable rebellion. Try to put yourself into their shoes. They'd been in the wilderness living in tents for over a year, looking forward to their move into their promised land. Now, after the return of the spies in Numbers chapter 13, which we looked at yesterday, they discover that someone already lives there, big giant people, who really won't want to move out so the Hebrews can move in. Obviously, they're disappointed, yea, even devastated. Okay, it's all right to be disappointed, but what you do after disappointing news is very important. And that brings us to Numbers chapter 14, verse 1. And all the congregation lifted up their voice and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron. And the whole congregation said unto them, Would God that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would God we had died in the wilderness? And wherefore hath the Lord brought us into this land, to fall by the sword, and that our wives and our children should be a prey? Were it not better for us to return into Egypt? And they said one to another, Let us make a captain, and let us return into Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the children of Israel. And Joshua the son of Nun, and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, which were of them that searched the land, rent their clothes. And they spake unto all the company of the children of Israel, saying, The land which we pass through to search it, it is an exceeding good land. If the Lord delight in us, then he will bring us into this land, and give it us, a land which floweth with milk and honey. Only rebel not ye against the Lord, neither fear ye the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their defense is departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Fear them not. But all the congregation bade stone them with stones, and the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle of the congregation, before all the children of Israel. Well, we see here these Hebrews begin to murmur against Moses, Aaron, and God. Joshua and Caleb try to explain that the presence of people living in Canaan already is a good discovery. In verse 9, they point out that because of their presence, bread, in other words, sustenance or provisions, uh, that exist in Canaan to assist the Hebrews in their new habitation. However, that argument just doesn't fly with these Hebrew rebels. Then comes the deal-breaker. They determined to appoint their own leader to take them back to Egypt. Moreover, this angry mob of Hebrews began to organize a stoning to take care of Joshua and Caleb for good. Why? Well, they objected to Joshua and Caleb's positive report and recommendation to obey God 
and proceed into Canaan despite the presence of its giant inhabitants. So here's a question. Is this an attempt to substitute a democracy in place of rule by God, which would be a theocracy? Well, I believe it is. But then we see, beginning with verse 11, that God shows up just in the nick of time. Verse 11, And the Lord said unto Moses, How long will this people provoke me, and how long will it be, ere they believe me? For all the signs which I have showed among them, I will smite them with the pestilence, and disinherit them, and will make of thee a greater nation, and mightier than they. And Moses said unto the Lord, Then the Egyptians shall hear it, for thou broughtest up this people in thy might from among them, and they will tell it to the inhabitants of this land, for they have heard that thou, Lord, art among this people, that thou, Lord, art seen face to face, and that thy cloud standeth over them, and that thou goest before them by daytime in a pillar of a cloud, and in a pillar of fire by night. Now if thou shalt kill all these people as one man, then the nations which have heard the fame of thee will speak, saying, Because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land which he sware unto them, therefore he hath slain them in the wilderness. And now I beseech thee, let the power of my Lord be great, according as thou hast spoken, saying, The Lord is long-suffering and of great mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression, and by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation. Pardon, I beseech thee, the iniquity of this people according unto the greatness of thy mercy, and as thou hast forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. And the Lord said, I have pardoned according to thy word. But as truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, because all those men which have seen my glory and my miracles which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and have tempted me now these ten times, and have not hearkened to my voice, surely they shall not see the land which I swear unto their fathers, neither shall any of them that provoke me see it. But my servant Caleb, because he had another spirit with him, and hath followed me fully, him will I bring into the land wherein he went, and his seed shall possess it. Now the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwelt in the valley. Tomorrow turn you and get you into the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. Well, we see here that this angry mob of Hebrews would have pursued their mutiny had the glory of the Lord not shown up in their midst. That's the Shekinah glory. God tells Moses that he's ready to just wipe out the whole congregation and start all over again with a new batch of Hebrews. Hey, doesn't this discussion sound familiar? Notice what God told Moses after the calf-worshipping incident back in Exodus chapter 32 in verses 9 and 10. He said, Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may wax hot against them, and that I may consume them, and I will make of thee a great nation. Now look at what he says here in this chapter, Numbers chapter 14, verse 12. I will smite them with the pestilence and disinherit them and will make of thee a greater nation and a mightier than they. Once again, Moses pleads for them just as he did back when Aaron made them the golden calf. 
I think it's worth noting the rationale Moses uses with God in verses 13 to 16, where he points out to God the negative publicity God himself will receive among the heathen nations if he wipes out the Hebrews out here in the wilderness. Moses seems quite comfortable negotiating with God on this occasion. So here's the compromise deal. No death to all Hebrews right now, but all those men who rebelled will die in the wilderness without reaching Canaan. One exception is mentioned here, Caleb. And another, Joshua, is mentioned a few verses later when we get down to verse 38. Notice that the carefully selected words of Moses in verse 18 include a quotation from the text of the second of the Ten Commandments, one that expresses a principle of God's judgment. Exodus chapter 20 verse 5 says, Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. Now notice also the same commandment in Deuteronomy chapter 5 verse 9, stated again, Thou shalt not bow down thyself unto them, nor serve them, for I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. As a matter of fact, this principle is mentioned yet again by God himself in his appearance to Moses in Exodus chapter 34. Notice Exodus 34 verse 6 says, And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. Verse 7 goes on to say, Keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, upon the children's children, under the third and to the fourth generation. By quoting God here, Moses seems to be saying that he understands that there will be consequences that very well should extend to future generations. But please don't wipe out the Hebrew nation completely. Moses' bargaining chip here seems to be that God had never mentioned previously that the consequences of rebellion would include extermination, just extended chastisement. Moses follows this statement in verse 19 with this, Pardon, I beseech thee, the iniquity of this people, according unto the greatness of thy mercy, and as thou hast forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. In other words, God, you never told us that rebellion would result in extermination. Therefore, please punish us according to your previously stated decrees. So, how did these negotiations that Moses undertook here go with God? How did it work out? Well, God renegotiated his decree. And it's found in verses 20 and 21. Here's what it says. And the Lord said, I have pardoned according to thy word. But as truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Whew, what a relief. The Hebrews can live after all. Okay, so... After dodging that bullet, let's see what the punishment will be. Well, that's found in the next two verses, in verses 22 and 23. And here it is. No rest in their new homeland for this whole generation of men. Now, for the that's not fair crowd, let's notice what God says in verses 22 and 23 specifically. He says, 
because all those men which have seen my glory and my miracles, which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and have tempted me now these ten times, and have not hearkened to my voice, surely they shall not see the land which I swear unto their fathers, neither shall any of them that provoke me see it. So God makes a point that this huge punishment on the whole generation of men is not simply because of this incident, but rather it's a ten-event accumulation. Now you might be wondering, what are those ten occasions of Israel's rebellion? Well, let me just name and number them for you. Number one, Israel's distrust and rebuke of Moses at the Red Sea. That took place in Exodus chapter 14, verses 11 and 12. The second one was at Merah, when they were thirsty and murmured against Moses. That was in Exodus 15, verses 23 and 24. Then thirdly, they murmured against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness of Sinai, where they were hungry, in Exodus chapter 16, verse 2. Number four, they dismissed God's command regarding keeping manna overnight, in Exodus chapter 16, verse 20. Number five, they also dismissed God's command on gathering manna on the Sabbath. We see that in Exodus 16, verse 27. And number six, they murmured against Moses at Rephidim, where they were again thirsty in Numbers chapter 17, verses 1 through 3. Then there was that golden calf incident at Horeb. That's number seven in Exodus chapter 32, verse 7. Then there was the fire from the Lord at Taborah because of their complaining in Numbers chapter 11, verse 1. That's number 8. Then in number 9, there was another episode of complaining about hunger in Numbers chapter 11, verse 4. And then there was that mutiny attempt in number 10 after the return of the spies. And that's seen in Numbers chapter 14. So I think you should be able to see that this generational death sentence was well-deserved for repeated rebellion. It wasn't just for one act of defiance against God. As a result of God's decree on this day, Israel makes a U-turn back into the wilderness at God's command. At this point in time, God commands Moses in verse 25 and says, Tomorrow turn you and get you into the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. This begins the 38-plus years of Israel's moving from camp to camp in the wilderness waiting for this generation of men who rejected God on this occasion to die off. The official decree and specifics are found beginning in verse 26, which we're getting ready to read. We see God's official decree given to Moses and Aaron. Verse 26, And the Lord spake unto Moses and unto Aaron, saying, How long shall I bear with this evil congregation which murmur against me? I have heard the murmurings of the children of Israel, which they murmur against me. Say unto them, As truly as I live, saith the Lord, as ye have spoken in mine ears, so will I do to you. Your carcasses shall fall in this wilderness, and all that were numbered of you, according to your whole number from twenty years old and upward, which have murmured against me. Doubtless ye shall not come into the land, concerning which I swear to make you dwell therein save Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. But your little ones, which ye said should be a prey, them will I bring in, and they shall know the land which ye have despised. But as for you, your carcasses, they shall fall in this wilderness. And your children shall wander in the wilderness forty years, and bear your whoredoms until your carcasses be wasted in the wilderness." 
after the number of the days in which ye search the land, even forty days, each day for years shall ye bear your iniquities, even forty years, and ye shall know my breach of promise. I, the Lord, have said, I will surely do it unto all this evil generation that are gathered together against me in this wilderness. They shall be consumed, and there they shall die. And the men which Moses sent to search the land, who returned and made all the congregation to murmur against him by bringing up a slander upon the land, even those men that did bring up the evil report upon the land died by the plague before the Lord. But Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, which were of the men that went to search the land, lived still. Well, forty years in the wilderness is the penalty for their disobedience. In a casual read, it's not clear whether the decree, verse 29, means that all the Hebrews, men and women, twenty years of age and older, will die in the wilderness, or just the men. However, if you stick with the exact wording, it says that just the men were held accountable. Now, pardon me for conjecturing, but I just can't imagine a rebellion against leadership of this magnitude without the Hebrew women being right there in the thick of it, stomping their feet and issuing their own set of decrees, if to no one else, to at least their own husbands. However, based upon scriptures found here and in Deuteronomy chapters 1 and 2, it appears conclusive that only the fighting men who were counted in the census above age 20 would die off over the 42-year period. And that's with the exception of Joshua and Caleb, who are mentioned by name. That being the case, this decree did not apply to Levites, the tribe of Levi, or to women. See, the article that I've written, entitled The Canaan Spies in the Forty Years, I've included it in my written notes on BibleTrack.org for this day's reading, or you can also find it under the topic section of BibleTrack.org. You'll get a full explanation there showing you why we know that Levites and women weren't included in this death sentence. But finally, a day for a year. That's the time that is to lapse. The spies spent 40 days spying out Canaan, and it will be 40 years of travel before the Hebrews will actually reach their destination in Canaan. So, what about the ten spies who brought about this rebellion in the first place? Well, notice verse 37. It says, Even those men that did bring up the evil report upon the land died by the plague before the Lord. The Hebrew word translated plague there means blow or slaughter. It appears from this verse that these infamous ten were immediately stricken at this time as an immediate evidence of God's wrath. Incidentally, the best Canaan proposition the people ever had was outlined back in Exodus chapter 23. It was there in that passage that God had promised to send an angel before them into Canaan to clear the land before they got there. However, after the golden calf incident of Exodus chapter 32, God withdrew that provision of the angel preceding them into the land in Exodus chapter 33 verses 2 and 3. After that incident, Moses negotiated with God to get God's presence to accompany them, and he did that in Exodus chapter 33, verse 14. Now, however, the people have rebelled once again, and that serves to delay their entry into Canaan for another 38-plus 
years. Well, they change their mind. Of course they would change their mind after they hear God's consequences in verse 39. And Moses told these things unto all the children of Israel, and the people mourned greatly. And they rose up early in the morning and gat them up unto the top of the mountain, saying, Lo, we be here, and will go up into the place which the Lord hath promised, for we have sinned. And Moses said, Wherefore now do ye transgress the commandment of the Lord? But it shall not prosper. Go not up, for the Lord is not among you, that ye be not smitten before your enemies. For the Amalekites and Canaanites are there before you, and ye shall fall by the sword, because ye are turned away from the Lord. Therefore the Lord will not be with you. But they presumed to go up into the hilltop. Nevertheless, the ark of the covenant of the Lord and Moses departed not out of the camp. Then the Amalekites came down and the Canaanites, which dwelt in that hill, and smote them and discomfited them, even unto Hormah. Well, you can imagine that they took the news of their impending deaths quite badly, especially after witnessing the immediate deaths of the ten spies who brought back the evil report. By the next day, that well, they've changed their minds. They decide to go into Canaan and fight against the Amalekites and other Canaanites, but Moses warns them that it's too late. God won't be with them when they go in. Moses is very clear with his words in verse 42. He says, Go not up, for the Lord is not among you, that you be not smitten before your enemies. They once again ignore the warning of Moses And the result is a big old defeat. Well, there's a lesson here, and here it is. Saying I'm sorry does not necessarily restore circumstances back to the way they were before the disobedience. Let's face it. It's better not to disobey God in the first place. Then we have the narrative of Israel's wanderings that began back in Numbers 10, verse 11. It comes to an end here. Numbers chapter 10 to 14 served to give us the circumstances whereby Israel's arrival in Canaan was delayed by nearly 39 years. Okay, enough about the rebellion. We come to chapter 15 and we're not talking about the rebellion anymore. We're talking about some specifications for offerings for after they reach Canaan. Verse 1. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When you come into the land of your habitation, which I have given to you, and will make an offering by fire unto the Lord, a burnt offering, or a sacrifice in performing a vow, or in a freewill offering, or in your solemn feast, to make a sweet savor unto the Lord of the herd or of the flock, then shall he that offereth his offering unto the Lord bring a meat offering of a tenth deal of flour mingled with the fourth part of an hen of oil, and the fourth part of an hen of wine for a drink offering thou shalt prepare with the burnt offering or sacrifice for one lamb, or for a ram thou shalt prepare for a meat offering two-tenths deals of flour mingled with the third part of an hen of oil, and for a drink offering thou shalt offer the third part of an hen of wine for a sweet savor unto the Lord, and when thou preparest a bullock for a burnt offering or for a sacrifice in performing a vow, or peace offerings unto the Lord, then shall he bring with the bullock a meat offering of three-tenth deals of flour mingled with and half hen of oil. And thou shalt bring for a drink offering half an hen of wine for an offering made by fire, 
with a sweet savor unto the Lord. Thus shall it be done for one bullock and for one ram, or for a lamb or a kid. According to the number that ye shall prepare, so shall ye do to every one according to their number. All that are born of the country shall do these things after this manner in offering an offering made by fire of a sweet savor unto the Lord. And if a stranger sojourn with you, or whosoever be among you in your generations, and will offer an offering made by fire of a sweet savor unto the Lord, as ye do, so he shall do. One ordinance shall be both for you of the congregation and also for the stranger that sojourneth with you, an ordinance forever in your generations, as ye are, so shall the stranger be before the Lord. One law and one manner shall be for you, and for the stranger that sojourneth with you. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When ye come into the land whither I bring you, then it shall be that when ye eat of the bread of the land, ye shall offer up an heave offering unto the Lord. Ye shall offer up a cake of the first of your dough for an heave offering, as ye do the heave offering of the threshing floor, so shall ye heave it. Of the first of your dough ye shall give unto the Lord an heave offering in your generations. And if ye have erred and not observed all these commandments which the Lord hath spoken unto Moses, even all that the Lord hath commanded you by the hand of Moses, from the day that the Lord commanded Moses, and henceforward among your generations. Well, the narrative of Israel's travels that began back in Numbers chapter 10, verse 11, well, it's interrupted here for some legal content. Leviticus chapters 1 through 7 present the basic standards of offerings for the Hebrews, paying close attention to those sacrifices that deal with the issues of sin and guilt. The offerings here in Numbers chapter 15 are special in that they relate more to the desire of the Hebrew believer for spontaneous grateful response to his personal relationship with God. Notice that the wording in verse 3 seems to indicate an individual's willingness. Much of what we see here is seen also in Leviticus chapters 1 through 7. It's interesting to see that the specifications of these sacrifices also apply to a stranger. Verse 14 says that. The stranger who lives among the Hebrews. In other words, there was not to be one law for the Hebrews and another law for non-Hebrews. If you lived there, you kept the same law. The hint of verse 5 was an Egyptian measurement equal to about a gallon. You'll notice in verses 14 to 16 that no differentiation in these sacrifices is to be made with regard to non-Hebrew strangers. The same procedures apply to all. A point made again down in verses 29 to 31. What about sins of ignorance? We have uh, verses that deal with that. In Numbers chapter 15 verses 24 to 31, let's read. Then it shall be, if aught be committed by ignorance without the knowledge of the congregation, that all the congregation shall offer one young bullock for a burnt offering, for a sweet savor unto the Lord, with his meat offering, and his drink offering according to the manner, and one kid of the goats for a sin offering. And the priest shall make an atonement for all the congregation of the children of Israel, and it shall be forgiven him, for it is ignorance." And they shall bring their offering, a sacrifice made by fire unto the Lord, and their sin offering before the Lord for their ignorance. And it shall be forgiven all the congregation of the children of Israel, and the stranger that sojourneth among them, seeing all the people were in ignorance. 
And if any soul sin through ignorance, then he shall bring a she-goat of the first year for a sin offering. And the priest shall make an atonement for the soul that sinneth ignorantly. When he sinneth by ignorance before the Lord to make an atonement for him, and it shall be forgiven him. He shall have one law for him that sinneth through ignorance, both for him that is born among the children of Israel, and for the stranger that sojourneth among them. But the soul that doeth aught presumptuously, whether he be born in the land or a stranger, the same reproacheth the Lord, and that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Because he hath despised the word of the Lord, and hath broken his commandment, that soul shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be upon him. A distinction is made here between deliberate and unintentional sin. Sacrifices are specified for the unintentional sin, but verses 30 and 31 make it clear that the one who commits intentional sin is to be cut off from among his people. Well, what does that mean? I mean, this phrase or variation of it is used a lot in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. At a minimum, cut off means to be kicked out of the tribe of Israel. What follows the statement in this passage would indicate that it means something a little more than that. We'll see that when we get down to Numbers chapter 15, verses 32 to 36. According to the notes found in the Jewish Study Bible, that soul shall be utterly cut off is explained as follows. Karet, the cutting off of a person, is a punishment enacted by the divine. What constitutes the punishment is not defined here but can be gleaned from other biblical passages which indicate punishments affecting both the sinner and his progeny. We see that in Malachi 2.12 and Psalm 109.13. Traditional Jewish interpretation includes childlessness, early death, and or death of the soul together with the body at the same time of death. Now, by the way, you'll notice that was incidentally a quote from the Jewish Study Bible a Bible that is embraced by Jews everywhere. But you'll notice, as mentioned in the previous section, that one law applied to Hebrews and strangers. This is seen in verses 14 to 16, and again here in verses 29 to 31. Now, an interesting, well, a fascinating passage of Scripture begins with Numbers chapter 15, verses 32 to 36. And while the children of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man that gathered sticks upon the Sabbath day. And they that found him gathering sticks brought him unto Moses and Aaron and unto all the congregation. And they put him in ward, because it was not declared what should be done to him. And the Lord said unto Moses, The man shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones without the camp. And all the congregation brought him without the camp and stoned him with stones, and he died as the Lord commanded Moses. Well, here's the deal. There was a plainly stated law back in Exodus chapter 35, verses 2 and 3. Here's what it says. Six days shall be work be done, but on the seventh day there shall be to you an holy day, a Sabbath day of rest to the Lord, Whosoever doeth work therein shall be put to death. He shall kindle no fire throughout your habitations upon the Sabbath day. Now, Exodus chapter 31, verse 14 had previously decreed this. He shall keep the Sabbath, therefore, for it is holy unto you, 
everyone that defileth it shall surely be put to death. For whosoever doeth any work therein, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. What's not specified in either passage is who does the execution. Is it God or a delegation of Hebrew executioners? So here's this man gathering a little bit of firewood, but it's the Sabbath day. Well, what's the harm in that? Just because it's Saturday, I mean, what's the big deal? Well, the people who found him, they don't know exactly what to think about it either. So they brought him before Moses and Aaron. He apparently had not actually kindled the fire yet. So surely they're thinking that, you know, this unintentional, intentional decree that had just been given in verses 24 to 31. They don't know what to do. They're just not certain what should be done with this Sabbath firewood gathering guy. So they lock him up for the time being to consult with God. Then they get the decree from God. Stone him to death. Now please allow me to make a point here. If you're one of those who feels bound to keep the law of Moses, I mean the Ten Commandments, maybe you refer to them as the moral law. Well, don't slight commandment number four regarding the Sabbath day. Obviously, it's a very important day. It's a very important commandment. They stoned the guy to death for not keeping that commandment right here in Numbers chapter 15. If you'd like to see more information regarding the Jewish practice of observing the Sabbath and how that relates to believers today, then I suggest you read my article under the topic section of BibleTrack.org entitled The Sabbath Day. Then we have a few verses about fringe, because fringe is in, in verses 37 to 41. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and bid them that they make them fringes in the borders of their garments throughout their generations, and that they put upon the fringe of the borders a ribbon of blue. And it shall be unto you for a fringe, that you may look upon it, and remember all the commandments of the Lord, and do them. And that ye seek not after your own heart and your own eyes, after which ye used to go a-whoring. That ye may remember and do all my commandments, and be holy unto your God. I am the Lord your God, which brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. Well, this ancient fashion statement is actually still the rage. Orthodox Jews today are still adamant about observing this law. The Hebrew word for fringe is zitzit, and that's what it's called by Jews today. As a matter of fact, this law is particularly significant in light of a couple of occasions where the people just wanted to touch the zitzit, the fringe of Jesus' garment, once in Matthew chapter 9, verse 20, and another time in Matthew chapter 14, verse 36. This fringe from the garment was considered very sacred. After all, it was decreed by God himself to be worn in this very passage. You know, it's worth noting that these five verses, verses 37 to 41, are included in the Jewish Shema, along with Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9, and Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 13 to 21. Observant Jews down through the centuries all the way down to today have worn a leather wallet called a tefillin, on the arm and head that contained these prayers. Later they were called in Greek phylacteries. Today the custom is to wear these during prayer time. 
but the Pharisees seem to have worn theirs all the time. These same verses are also encased in a mezuzah. It's a small box and placed on the doorpost of a traditional Jewish home. Well, Jews feel that this practice is mandated in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 8 and 9. Then we come to a prayer by Moses, where Moses prays an anguished prayer recorded in Psalm chapter 90. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Verse 1, Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or even thou hadst formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. Thou turnest man to destruction, and sayest, Return, ye children of men. For a thousand years on thy side are but as yesterday, when it is past, and as a watch in the night. Thou carriest them away as with a flood. They are as asleep. In the morning they are like grass which groweth up. In the morning it flourisheth and groweth up. In the evening it is cut down and withereth. For we are consumed by thine anger and by thy wrath are we troubled. Thou hast set our iniquities before thee, our secret sins in the light of thy countenance. For all our days are passed away in thy wrath. We spend our years as a tale that is told. The days of our years are threescore years and ten. And if by reason of strength they be fourscore years, yet is their strength labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. Who knoweth the power of thine anger, even according to thy fear? So is thy wrath. So teach us to number our days, that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? And let it repent thee concerning thy servants. O satisfy us early with thy mercy, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days wherein thou hast afflicted us, and the years wherein we have seen evil. Let thy work appear unto thy servants, and thy glory unto their children. And let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us, and establish thou the work of our hands upon us, yea, the work of our hands establish thou it. Well, this is the only psalm that's specifically subtitled as belonging to Moses. While it's not possible to say with certainty, this seems a likely occasion that Moses prayed this prayer before God, especially in light of verse 7, which says, For we are consumed by thine anger and by thy wrath are we troubled. Well, the lesson here is simple. Accept God's providence and move on in his direction. Perhaps Peter was thinking of uh, Psalm 90 verse 4 when he wrote his second epistle. Psalm 90 verse 4 says, For a thousand years in thy sight are but as yesterday, when it is past, and as a watch in the night. In Second Peter chapter 3 verse 8, here's what Peter writes. But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Well, it certainly sounds as though Peter was quoting, or at least had in mind, what Psalm 90 verse 4 had said. Now, speaking of years, Moses comments on the average lifespan in verse 10 when he says this, The days of our years are threescore years and ten, and if by reason of strength they be fourscore years, it is their strength, labor, and sorrow. 
for it is soon cut off, and we fly away. Well, that's 70 to 80 years old on the average. Interestingly enough, though, Moses lived to be 120, and Aaron lived to be 122. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Faith Bible Church, Paul Walton.